This podcast was made with Descript. Descript is a groundbreaking new media tool that allows creators to edit audio and video like a text document and create a realistic clone of their own voice for seamless edits. Please check out our Patreon at Asian Hustle Network. We want Asians to continue being meaningful and give back to the Asian community. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to contribute to our feature, we hope you become a patron. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. Her name is Laura Huang. Laura is the MBA class of 1954 Associate Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School. Laura's research examines interpersonal relationships and implicit bias in entrepreneurship and in the workplace. She is the creator of Find Your Edge, an initiative dedicated to addressing inequality and disadvantage through personal empowerment. Her award-winning research has been featured in the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Forbes, and Nature, and she was named one of the 40 best business school professors under the age of 40 by Poets and Quants. Previously, she has held positions in investment banking, consulting, and management for organizations such as Standard Chartered Bank, IBM Global Services, and Johnson & Johnson. Laura holds an MS and BSc in Electrical Engineering, both from Duke University, an MBA from INSEAD, and a PhD from the University of California, Irvine. Her first book is entitled Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you, such a, such a pleasure to be on here with you guys. Of course, we've been wanting you, to, wanting you to come on the podcast for a while now, and we're super excited to have you here. I know it took us a little while to get the scheduling under <laughs> under control, but, um, but I'm here and I'm super excited and love what you guys are doing. Thank you so much. Yeah, let's hop right into it, Laura. Like, where'd you grow up? What was, what was your childhood like? You want to hear more about your story? Yeah. So, I mean, my childhood, I had a really happy childhood. I mean, I can't, no, no big complaints, um, you know, but I, I think a lot of it was because I was super naive. Like, I didn't realize all of the things that were going on around me. Um, I, I grew up in a town that was predominantly all Caucasian. There was only two Asian families. Um, there was our family and then there was my best friend Deepa, her family. So it was us and Deepa, who was Indian American. Um, and we, you know, it was it was really happy, but I think we it was only way later that I sort of recognized how sheltered of a life that I I had and had to sort of really understand my identity in a really different way. Because growing up, I just you know, I wanted to have blonde hair and blue eyes and didn't think any differently because that was what I had seen all around me. Um, and, you know, so I tell lots of these sort of stories in my book around how there was lots of discrimination. There was lots of implicit bias, uh, but it was only way later that looking back, I, I, I sort of identified it for what it was. So, um, but, but yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I grew up as the child of immigrants. Um, both my parents are from Taiwan. And, you know, I don't know how, how quickly you want me to launch into like stories. Because I, I know you guys, all love, about all you guys love all, you the, are. all of the stories. But, um, but no, I, I think like, you know, lots of little stories of things growing up. And um, what I talk about in my book is how I, I say often like life rhymes. 
And what I mean by that is like, we have these experiences as, as, as kids and later on, and we might not know exactly what's happening, but there's certain feeling that we have, or like it leaves, a you know, us feeling slightly uncomfortable and we don't know why or slightly frustrated and we don't know why. And then later on in life, we have another experience that we have that same emotion Mm-hmm. And it might be a completely different context, completely different people. And over life, we build up these situations where our life kind of rhymes. And I feel like that really leads us to who we are and what our identity ends up shaping up to become. Because I think my identity was always one of this balance between fitting in and completely being on the outskirts of, of things. And um, on the one hand, like, trying to uh, like being a cheerleader in high school, because that was what gave you power and status and in like in this town that I grew up, but then like shuffling back and forth between cheerleading practice and like, you know, practicing, uh, doing, doing like problems for my AP calculus exam. And, you know, these, these sort of different pieces of our identity that, that we sort of hold. Wow. That's awesome. Uh, That's very powerful. Oh, I would, yeah, I was just going to say, I, I really relate to that as well. I think growing up, um, you know, I have always been petite. And so I always wanted to kind of look similar to how, you know, white girls looked like they were tall, they were skinny. And I also, you know, resonate in the fact that I wanted to do cheerleading as well. So <laughs> yeah, that's, very relatable. I mean, it's so cool. Like just hearing about your story mm-hmm. and, you know, let's talk a little bit more about your college career. You know, like you major mm-hmm. as, a, as an engineer and you worked in finance for a bit. How did your path take you to where you are today? And would you yeah, imagine I, yourself to be here? I've had the, I've the, I've had the craziest, craziest path and people like if you look at or even sort of describing the things that I've, I've done, it's either like this is a person who has like no clue what what she wants to do or this person is like, I mean, it's I really I I just have never known what I want to be when I grow up. Like, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I don't know that I want to be a professor when I, when I grow up, I just, you know, when you're, when you're younger, you only see a couple of different professions, right? All I saw was like pediatrician, um, teacher. There was only a certain couple of things that were, were sort of allowed. And then you would hear, I would, you know, what's probably very similar amongst all of your listeners or amongst many of your listeners is that there were other occupations that were like thrown at me, like be an engineer, be a doctor, be right. And so I think I just never really knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. And also I was managing so many different parts of my identity, right? Things from, you know, pretending to be my parents when I was calling the electric company um, or (laughs) filling out my own permission slips, um, pretending to be my mother, Mm-hmm. And so being like this kid and an adult, being someone who was Asian, but also Western, um, being someone who is told on the one hand that you could be anything, but yet being told you had to be certain things. Um, and so I I think, but the, the common thread is that I was always really curious. Like I was always curious about what was going on. And so I just tried lots of different things. And so I was an engineer by training, worked in engineering for a couple of years, um, worked in sales and marketing, uh, worked in management consulting, worked in investment banking, um, am now a professor, 
I've just had lots of different careers. And, and so who knows where that'll take me. I mean, maybe someday I'll decide that I no longer want to be a professor anymore and I'll try out something else. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I love your career path so much. And I think think to me, it's like, it shows that you can do anything and anything Mm -hmm. is possible, you know? And I think, um, I just from my own experience too, like I started out as an engineer then became a real estate investor and then became, then I got into venture and now I'm starting a community, which is like completely different from everything I ever thought I could do. But out of curiosity too, like where did your, I, I read through your book edge, right? Where did your sense of analysis come from? Like, was it something that you were taught with by your parents or something that you were always extra aware of your surroundings growing up? Does that make sense? Yeah, I was. I feel like I was always extra aware of my surroundings just because there was always things thrown at me that were unexpected. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think the the common theme is I just always felt like I didn't really belong. Like I was never I was never American enough to be in the U.S. I was never Taiwanese enough when I was in Taiwan. And so there was always this like this 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 risk of, of making missteps, of making um sort of these like errors and and not knowing what would what would become of that and always having to be attuned to others reactions analyzing the situation Um, and a lot of that has gone into my research and my work which is so much around perceptions and attributions and and the underlying perceptions that others have about us and how we can sort of flip that in our favor I mean I remember when I was little there was this situ- like when you when when I was growing up and there was this thing where when it was whenever it was your birthday, mm-hmm. um, they the the big thing is like you would bring cupcakes to school, and um, and I was always like thought it was so cool because and you bring you bring cupcakes and everyone would bring cupcakes and they would be frosted with this thick frosting on top and all of the teachers would give you stickers and you would put it on your shirt and you would know that everyone would know it was your birthday but my mother never really knew how to like bake cupcakes right she didn't she didn't know it wasn't a part of her sort of culture. And so I remember like, I would always sort of just not tell people when my birthday was and just sort of pretend, let them assume that it was in the summer or sometime when, but it was actually in January. Right. So one year my mother finally figured out, she realized that that children would bring cupcakes to, to school on their birthday. And of course she was sort of like embarrassed because she wanted to, to give me that experience as well. And so she baked these cupcakes and brought them to school. And I was so excited that 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 my mother was was doing this and I was getting this sort of experience. And then she took the, you know, the covering off the 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 cupcakes. And all of a sudden I looked at them and I was like mortified because (laughs) instead of that thick frosting on top, my mother had made these cakes, but she had like put raisins at the top of them as like decorations. And I remember sort of scanning the room quickly Mm -hmm. and like seeing all of my classmates like about to like laugh hysterically and like start taunting me for these cupcakes that had like raisins in them instead of that thick frosting. And I sort of had to like, own the room in a set it like very very quickly and so I was like oh this is like the most and I told this like elaborate story about how these are like the most special cupcakes and like all of these sort of things to kind of because I didn't want my mother to kind of be embarrassed and 
you know, so, so I remember just like, even from a young age, having to, having to kind of manage the way that, that, and I didn't always manage things quite as, um, as, as like effortlessly as, as that. I can say that there are lots of experiences that I wished I had done differently, that I had not embarrassed my, my parents, but just so many of those, those sort of stories of, of growing up. I mean, the story of like when I was in third grade and, um, in this public school where um, a teacher came to me and said like something really odd has happened and I was like what what's going on and she said you we had to take these standardized tests every year and the the teacher said to me well you scored really high on these standardized tests so you should be in our gifted and talented program Mm -hmm. but we've never had anyone test into the program it's always been teachers who have had to recommend kids into this program. And so um, I, the teacher was like, there must be some mistake. So what we're going to do is we're going to have you take more tests. And so I had to take more tests. And then again, I scored high enough. They had my parents come in and they said, there must be some mistake. So we need you to sign these papers to Mm -hmm. sort of say that your daughter shouldn't be in, in gifted and talented. And I remember that I like, you know, didn't handle that situation very, very well. My parents had no idea what was happening. Um, Anyways, long story short, I ended up um, getting put into only gifted and talented for math. It was the first time that they split somebody like I would get pulled in and out of classes because they were like, there's no way you could be in gifted and talented for English. And so like there's all of these sort of situations that that come back to you around your identity and having to do perspective taking. But I think it also gives you empathy. And, and so something that I tell my students often is like, we, we're all striving for something, but make sure you also grow where you're planted, like grow where you're planted. And what that means is that like, we, we, it, even if we want to go, like we might be like we might be planted or our original soil is like clay or like dirt or not very nutritious dirt or whatever, but, and we want to uproot ourselves and put ourselves in another condition or another circumstance or another environment. And that's totally fine, but make sure you first grow your planted, get really strong, grow those roots, because then you can actually move yourself to any sort of soil and continue to thrive and grow. But if you do that too quickly before you've had a t- had time to actually understand like the nutrients in your own soil and grow and and grow strong and get those roots you actually do yourself a disservice so grow where you're planted so that you are strong and you do understand where you come from so that you can put yourself in any sort of circumstance or any context and in, and understand that perspective and understand that new environment and really continue to thrive based on where you came from. Wow, that is extremely powerful. Yeah, I really like that a lot because- I hope my students like it as much as you guys do. Sometimes they do. I love analogies because I think it relates so much to to our culture in general, right? It's like, Mm It's I don't know, just there's a saying Vietnamese growing up where mom's like, you change too often, you're gonna break in half or something like that. You know? yeah. So it comes back to like the fundamentals too. And it just really mm-hmm. knowing who you are before moving to any type of environment, because once you know who you are, your perception actually increases, and your awareness increases. And now you kind of see the world fitting into your strengths and weaknesses. And you kind of 
I don't want to say this manipulate situation because you understand the situation so well because you know yourself really well, mm-hmm. you know, it's basically yeah, the way I mean, the way I it's, it's exactly you really can guide situations. You can yeah. guide and redirect in a way that is yeah. very authentic um, because you you don't forget, like when your roots are strong, you don't have to be afraid of the wind or whatever. And yeah. so um, I, I think it, it is really important that that we we hold on to that and yeah. we, we embrace that piece of ourselves, too. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So I, I read that that piece in your book as well, but also reminds me of Steve Jobs book of when he talks about his dreams and passion, they call it like the uh, distorting reality or something that he does. To uh-huh. like, it's the world around him. Like, this is the reality that like, we can do it. We can mm-hmm. build like an I, I, iPad or something or iPhone. And I feel like with your books, there's a lot of similarities with the way you guys perceive the world and think. Um, quick question though. I feel like a lot of what you mentioned is a lot of EQ base. So out of your own personal opinion, would you say, is EQ more important to success or IQ more important to success? And this is a big loaded question. <laughs> like, sorry about that. I was just curious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I always talk about, I say, the other way that I say it, I say like the most important thing is hard work plus. Mm-hmm. So, and what I mean by that is I definitely think, or, you know, I also, I think about in terms of like IQ, EQ, book smarts, works uh, like book smart, street smarts, hard work, hard work plus. I think that it's all really important, but it comes down to, I think what, what a lot of Asian and Asians and Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, like we are highly empathetic people because we've had to people who have had to. Um, put themselves in and out of situations, in and out of uncertainty, in and out of things that are not always the pre-prescribed norms of how things should run, you do develop these, you do develop a different type of perspective. You do develop an empathy for others. You do develop a different way of looking at the world. And I think that that's a really important skill to continue to cultivate. Um, I, But I, I do think that the hard work piece is, is, is critical. Um, I do think that, but the hard work piece, which, you know, just to give you a little bit of preview, like, well, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but um, my, the book, my book that I wrote is entitled Edge. Um, and it's all about how hard work is, is really what we've been taught from a young age. And, you know, that the secret to success is hard work. And that, but yet, even though hard work is critical, and I would never say that it's not critical, hard work alone is not enough. Right. Hard work is what leaves us frustrated. We have such a love affair with hard work and grit and these sort of things that we've been told, you know, put your head down, work twice as hard, even if it's just for half the amount of benefits. Mm-hmm. But that leaves us frustrated, that leaves us burnt out. And so it's not the hard work at all. Hard work is critical, but there's so many other things that dictate success and outcomes. Mm-hmm. So it's perceptions, it's it's attributions, it's subtle signals and cues, it's stereotypes. And so we have to be able to understand these underlying perceptions and signals and cues so that our hard work actually works harder for us. Mm-hmm. And so to kind of give a clear answer, because I, I hate when people like hedge and they're like, it depends, it's sort of both. Um, I would say it's the EQ piece, but 
I, I needed to give that whole preamble to explain <laughs> that obviously, you know, the hard work piece is, is, is critical. It's just that the hard work plus those perceptions, those guiding those perceptions is, is really what makes our hard work work harder for us. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, thank you for bringing that down. And I think that's so important, especially in Asian culture. I think that a lot of our parents had told us, you know, hard work, as long as you work hard, you'll be able to be successful. Things will work (laughs) out, you know? And just like you said, Laura, even if you don't get as many benefits, the the harder you work, you know, everything will be okay. And when you say hard work plus, you know, this goes back to your book Edge as well. I know you mentioned that, you know, there is so much more than hard work. Can you talk a little bit about what, Edge means to you, and yeah. And before we dive deep into that question, I want to hear about how you met Elon Musk. You know, that was like <laughs> one of the first chapters I read. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'll, I'll I'll actually do those two together. So I'll expl- I'll dig a little bit into the book, and then I'll tell the Elon story um, as like an example of how of like of of why it's such why it was such like a yeah. an example that 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 resonated when I was writing writing this book. So um, the book, as you mentioned, is entitled Edge, but Edge actually stands for the framework that I've developed over the last decade or so of my research where the E, D, G, and E actually stand for the components. So the E, the first E stands for enrich, the D stands for delight, the G stands for guide, and the final E stands for effort, effort and hard work. So enrich is really about how do we enrich and provide value in any sort of circumstance that we're going to be in. So what are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? What are our underestimated strengths? But the the important piece of this is that it's so much more than just self-awareness, right? A lot of times we say, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And we think this is about being self-aware. But this enriched section of my book, this entire section is around not just the value you provide, but understanding that in any sort of context, you change one variable, right? You change the industry that you're operating in or the mix of people that you're interacting with. And those perceptions of how you enrich or provide value are going to be really different. So it's about understanding who you are, but also how you are viewed. And what are those underlying perceptions and stereotypes that people have about you based on who you are and the context. The D stands for delight, which is really around how do we delight individually? Like how, what's our unique ways in which we delight our counterparts, whether it's a customer or a supplier or our boss or our counterparts or whoever it is. And the reason why it's so important to discover how we delight and and the ways in which we surprise people or the ways that we catch people off guard is because we don't always have the opportunity to show others how we enrich and provide value. And when we don't, it's sort of like it's often because doors are closed to us or we don't belong to the right networks or we don't look the right way. Or we don't speak the right way. Or we don't have the right education that these doors are closed to us, that we don't have the opportunities. We can't show others how we enrich and provide value. But when you're able to delight others and really 
almost just develop this intuition around how you delight others. It's the equivalent of cracking the door open a little bit. It's the, it's the equivalent of that because it gives you opportunities. You can actually form opportunities and create opportunities for yourself to give yourself the chance to show how you enrich and provide value. So the whole second part of my book is like, how do you delight others? How do you discover your unique ability to delight? The, D, the G stands for guide which is around how do you guide perceptions of others? Even when you know how you enrich and delight, you need to continue to guide the perceptions that others have about you. And this is where I was speaking a little bit before about, you know, when you understand those perceptions and you understand the stereotypes, you can actually flip those stereotypes in your favor. You can take adversity and obstacles and constraints and flip those in your favor to give you an edge. And so I talk lots about different tactics and strategies and tips for how to actually flip circumstances and turn and re redirect things in your favor. And then the final E stands for effort and hard work, because as I mentioned before, I mean, it is critical. It's one of the four components of my framework, but it comes last. Right. It comes last because when you know how you enrich and delight and guide, that's when you get those tailwinds. That's when your effort and hard work actually work harder for you. And so that's sort of the the um, the book in a nutshell. I know it's sort of long, but I'm also, you know, I summarized 200 and something pages, 270 pages in in, in sort of that. But um but yeah, that's that's kind of the 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 pieces of this framework and how how I sort of think about um, you know my research and the ways in which we can inoculate against biases and how we can really flip things in our favor to create our own advantage and our own edge. Um, so, okay, do you want me to do you, do you want me to take a break and you can ask something else, or do you want me to tell you the Elon story now? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think you break it down really well in mm -hmm. your book and. I don't know. I just feel like your book resonates with me, resonates with me so much. You know, after I read your book and I'm like, Hey, like we should reach out to Laura to have her in the podcast, you know, it's because Thanks. I, appreciate like, it. I think, um, what you mentioned, like your edge and what you stand for has, I've been using that throughout my entire life. And the reason being, cause you know, I didn't go to the best school. <laughs> I, I wasn't, I had to like change the perception of what people thought of me all the time, you know, like just breaking into we're venture partners right now. Right. Like everyone, our team is from MIT <laughs> yeah. or from Harvard, you know, like how did I break into this? You know, it's all about perception. It's all about controlling your narrative. It's all about offering value. But at the same time, once you're in, that's where the hard work comes into play, right? Can you back it up? Are you who you say you are? You know, totally. I mean, I was rejected from Harvard three times. A lot of people don't know that, but I was rejected from Harvard three different times. And so, you know, it is sort of funny that now at way later, they called me and they're like, hey, do you want to join our faculty? And I'm like, you, you do realize that you rejected me three times. What makes me qualified to, to <laughs> teach your students? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I want to dive deep into that later, too. And like, I know you mentioned that briefly in your book, but we want to get to the Elon part now. So interesting. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the um, so the story that that you're sort of referring to um, is uh, I tell this story about the first time that I met Elon Musk. Right. So he Elon, one of the richest um, individuals in the world. Um, I had very much lucked my way into this meeting with him. Um, I was doing research at the time 
on the emergence of the private space industry. So much, most of my research looks at entrepreneurship and disadvantage and disparities um, in entrepreneurship as well as in the workplace. And one of the contexts that I was studying this in was private space. Um, so looking at these companies who have to compete with NASA and Boeing and these behemoths and the disadvantage that they're sort of they, that they sort of face. Um, and so I had this meeting with Elon because he wanted to learn about the emergence of private space. Of course, he had started a company called SpaceX. Um, and so we had this meeting to kind of talk about um, different dynamics. Uh, and so I definitely had a way of enriching and providing value, right? This was a meeting that he wanted with, with me and one of my colleagues. And so we had knowledge, we had a way of enriching. But even so, I had put in tons of hard work going into this meeting, right? So we had, we, we basically, you know, spent so much time looking into all of his companies, not just SpaceX. So we knew everything about Tesla and PayPal, and we knew everything about him and his education and, and Canada and his family and his personal life, everything. We even prepared a small gift for him because, you know, I'm Asian and we never show up at someone's house or someone's <laughs> office empty handed. So we even had like prepared a gift for him. We just put in all of the hard work. Right. And so we show up at his office and he takes one look at me and he literally says, get out of my office. He like looks at me and he says, no, get out of my office. And I had not even said a word at this point. Mm -hmm. So I'm in this man's office and I don't know what to, I'm sort of shocked because like, you know, I had worked so hard for this meeting and like, I was so excited about this meeting. And then Elon looks at me and he's like, get out of my office. Like, no. Um, and so I start giggling because I was nervous. Like, I don't know. I was just nervous. And I started like laughing because I didn't know what to do. And so I'm sort of like laughing at, at Elon and he's all of us. He's like, he just like pauses. He's sort of like shocked for a second. Cause I think he's like, why is this like young Asian woman laughing in my face? And, and so then he started laughing at me and I have no idea why he then started laughing at me, but there's research on like when people are in situations of uncertainty, they, they like mimic the behaviors of others because they don't know what to do. So maybe that's why, but so now Elon and I are both laughing at each other. We're like both nervously laughing at each other. And in that instant, I re I realized that he's not actually looking at me. He's looking at the gift that I'm carrying. Mm -hmm. which was this unwrapped gift. And I, and I realized, so sort of like these underlying perceptions that I talked about, I realized, oh my gosh, he thinks I'm an entrepreneur and that this is a prototype. And that I'm trying to like get his money or like his investment or something, or like maybe he thinks I'm an employee and I'm trying to like pitch him on something or like, I have no idea. Like, why would he know who I was, right? Like, I don't know why I would have thought he would have known who I was. Um, <laughs> So, but, so I realize all of this. And so I sort of sputter out like through my laughter. I'm like, oh, oh you think I'm an entrepreneur? Mm -hmm. And he's like, aren't you? And I'm like, no. And you think I want your money? And he's like, don't you? And, I'm like, no, no, no. and I sort of like, again, in my nervousness, like I insulted him. I was like, you don't have any, what you have, so you have money. Why would I want your money? You don't have any money. Um, so I basically like insult his wealth and tell him that he has no money. And why would I ever like want his money? And, and he thinks that's so hilarious 
that he then is like, <laughs> he laughs even harder. And he's like, please come into my office. And he invites <laughs> me in. And so I tell this story of like, how was I, you know, well, and before I kind of go into like the, the explanation of this, we ended up having an amazing conversation. Like we were talking, we were laughing for real. And we, and by the end of the meeting, he was, he was sort of offering all of the very things that he was so adamantly saying no to, like without things that I didn't even want, right? He was like, oh, you know who else you should talk to? Let me introduce you to this person. And you know what I can help provide you is like, like things that I didn't even, but things that he was so adamantly saying no to, he was now freely offering up. Right. And so I tell this story because how was I able to gain an edge over one of the richest, most powerful men in, in the United States and, you know, in the world. Right. And I, and I talk about how there, it, it wasn't about hard work, right. The hard work piece came way later. It was the fact that I was able to, that I had understood his underlying perceptions, that I was able to sort of guide those perceptions, that I was able to turn it in his in my favor, that I was able to delight him in this surprising way that he didn't that he didn't expect. Um, so there was this enrich and delight and guide piece that that did make the hard work work harder for me. And I was able to gain an edge, you know, where he was offering all of these resources that that I, I had not even expected. Uh, and, and so that's, that's the Elon story. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. When I read that, that part, like right off the bat of your book, I was like, all right, this is the book I need to read. And you hear that guys, your biggest takeaway for opportunities is laugh at a rich person. That's what I, that's the funny thing. A lot of people are like, so this, so the, so the takeaway here is that you should like nervously giggle like a schoolgirl at like these fortune 500 and these top people. No. So the point is part of it is also like, it was a weird, like delight thing, right. Where it wouldn't have worked. Like if I was anyone else, it probably wouldn't have worked. Right. It was, it was something around the nature of the contacts and what we were there and what we were doing. And then I was like awkwardly holding this gift and that he was throwing me out of his office. And I was sort of like giggling at him nervously. There was something about that and and that's the that's the piece of delight that i think is so important to to recognize and the more you authentically make it about how you delight the more you're able to gain your own unique edge and so i talk about like what does delight actually mean mm -hmm. and how do you cultivate it and i guess the the quickest way to sort of explain because it's a really hard like emotion, it's a hard thing to sort of bottle. Like, how do I delight others? And again, I have lots of like exercises and ways that you can think about like cultivating how you delight, but I explain it as like, think about the very first time you were in an Uber, mm. like the very first time you were in an Uber. So for me anyways, the first time I was in Uber, I was sitting there and I was like, whoa, what is going on? Like, this is so cool, but so terrifying also. Like I'm in this stranger's car and they're just gonna like take me to where I need to go and they know where I live and they, I'm not gonna give them any money and I'm in their car. Like this is terrifying, but also like what is happening? And it was this momentary like couple of seconds where I stopped and you're sort of on alert. Right? You're like on alert because you're like, what's going on? And you want to either learn more or you want to like ask a question to figure it out just a little bit. 
like that's delight. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily positive or negative, but when you're able to instill that feeling in someone else, it doesn't matter if you just met them or if you've known them for 10 years, it like they see you in a slightly different fashion. It sort of like stops the music Mm -hmm. and it gives you a new, a new canvas or a new opportunity or a new way to enrich and provide value. Mm -hmm. And everyone has a unique way or unique ways in which they do this in sort of improvisational ways. And it's about honing that in yourself so that you can stop the music when you need to. Like you're getting kicked out of an office. How do you stop the music and like be able to redirect Um, And it's such a critical skill to to hone that I think we don't pay enough attention to and how powerful it can actually be. Yeah, that's really powerful. That is extremely powerful. I mean, I would love to know, you know, during that Elon Musk story, did you know, you know, obviously you were nervous at that time, right? Did you kind of know that you were actually, you know, putting these actions into place of, you know, enriching, delighting and guiding or, you know. I know there's another part that happened again in your book too, is when you got hired by Harvard to come Mm -hmm. in as a professor, right? And I, I think that that was a burning question that when we brought up that, hey, we're going to have Laura on our podcast and community was like, hey, look, we want to ask Laura, like, how did she apply the edge thing to getting hired at Harvard? Because you did have Elon Musk at the very beginning, beginning of the book, and then you, you talk about your Harvard story. So we want to see how these two tied into to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, it's not something where... It's not something where like I'm consciously saying, okay, step one, do this. Step two, do this. Yeah, yeah. So one, yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Because there are people who are like, what are the five steps that I need to I, five I, steps I need to take? Yeah. It's more of a perspective, right? So it's this framework, right? This framework around enriching, delighting, and guiding and effort. And and this framework is more of a perspective that the more that you 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 do make it yours, um, it it there's still gonna be failures. There's still going to be drawdowns. There's still going to be like periods where things aren't going to work out, but it gives you that plus. It gives you that hard work plus. It gives you more of those, those sort of opportunities to understand. And, and it really is like building a new muscle, right? It's building this intuition, this new mental model or schema or prototype for how to approach situations so that you do give yourself those kinds of benefits. Um, And I think that's kind of where I've been able to, um, yeah, like go from getting rejected from Harvard three times to becoming a a professor where they were calling me and saying, please join us. In fact, the first time they called me, um, I said, they said, well, would you be interested in moving here? And I was like, moving where? And they're like, moving here to Harvard. And I'm like, no, I'm not interested. I'm like, my family is very settled. We're not moving. And they said, okay. And they actually called me back four weeks later Uh and they said, what would it take to actually get you? What would it take to get you to move here? Right. So there's like lots of different nuances to to how things end up panning out. Um, And I think, you know, I tell lots of stories and give lots of examples. But I think one of the things that would be probably the most helpful is to talk a little bit about like how we think about this perspective. And um, early on in my research, what I found was that 
there are all of these perceptions out there, right? So there's these positive perceptions, like this person's really conscientious and ambitious. And then there's like negative perceptions, like this person is really shallow and, you know, um, and arrogant or whatever. And what I found was that these positive and negative perceptions, there are certain positive and negative perceptions that cluster together. Mm -hmm. So meaning, just like there's a thin line between love and hate, right? So you might love someone and then all of a sudden you, it's like these are really strong emotions. So like you love someone and then like all of a sudden you hate them and you love, right? Just like there's a thin line between love and hate, there's actually a thin line between these positive and negative perceptions that cluster together. Mm-hmm. And so what I started studying was how we could take these negative perceptions and stereotypes and actually flip them to the positive manifestations of those, mm-hmm. right? So um, for example, like let's take someone with an accent, right? Accent was something I studied because growing up, I realized that both my parents were getting turned down for promotion after promotion after promotion. Mm-hmm. And during one of these promotions, the person who got promoted over my dad, the person who became his boss, that my dad was actually doing his job for him. And everyone knew it because everyone knew that that person wasn't qualified. And so I asked my father, I said, why is it that you think you got promoted? I mean, you didn't get the promotion. And he said, I don't know, it's probably because of my accent or my the way I communicate or something like that. So I wanted to study accent. Mm-hmm. And so what I found was that, yes, based on someone's accent, having a non-standard American accent, they were less likely to get a raise, less likely to get a promotion, less likely to get hired into top management team positions, less likely to get funding for their ventures. But what I found was that it wasn't about communication, which was what the lay perception of what my father thought it was, right? And I tested this because I would take four people with accents, four people without accents, for example, and I would randomize the order in which they would present to a panel of investors, for example. So they would be entrepreneurs and I wouldn't ask the investors, who would you invest in? Because I already knew they were less likely to invest in those with accents. Instead, I would say to them, just write down three things that you learned from this person's pitch or three things that you recall or three things that you think are really interesting. And I found that the investors uh, learned just as much from those with accents, they were just as interested, they were um, just as likely to remember things. So it wasn't about communication, but what it was about was that for some of these entrepreneurs or these individuals, they were rated much lower in terms of things like, how good of a team player is this person? How interpersonally influential is this person? Um, How creative or out of the box thinking are they? And so then I ran another series of studies where I would have these individuals, for example, before they would go into an interview, I would tell them the perception they have about you is that you are not as interpersonally influential or that you're not as creative or that you're not as good of a team player. And then over the course of the interviews, I heard them saying phenomenal things. They would get asked questions like, tell me about a time when, or if I was your man, you know, these questions we get asked during interviews. And I would hear them saying things like, let me tell you about a time when I fought for resources for my team, or let me tell you about a time when I had this really tough deal that I needed to close, but I did it in this really creative way and I didn't stop until it was closed. And here's the thing that was so interesting is that not only were they more likely to get the job and not only were they more likely to get rated higher in terms of things like interpersonal influence and thinking outside the box and being a team player, 
They were also rated significantly higher in terms of their communication skills. They were rated much lower in terms of their acts, in terms of how strong their accent was. And all of these other things that had nothing to do with anything they talked about during the interview. All of a sudden, these people were deemed as having not that big of an accent, being great communicators, all of these things that they didn't address. They never said like my accent or the way I communicate. They addressed these underlying perceptions. And so they were able to flip from these sort of positive manifestations to these, sorry, from these negative manifestations to these positive manifestations and really flip the stereotypes and flip this adversity in their favor. And so I talk about lots of different ways in which we do this in, in terms of these perceptions and these signals and cues that can actually give us an advantage and level the playing field or give us that edge. I love the explanation. I love how passionate you are too. <laughs> I'm so like, whoa, it's so passionate. I love it. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and you break it down just so eloquently and it makes so much sense. It's it's one of those things that we normally don't really think about, but yeah. you know, just hearing you talk about your study and your research, it, it helps us visualize it so much better. Yeah. It makes me want to apply to a Harvard MBA program now. Yeah, I'm like, all right. You know, I hope your listeners aren't like, whoa, all of this research. <laughs> yeah, it, it does get overall. I'm trying to tell it and not like, you know, without like all of the statistics and all of the like the the findings and everything. But um but yeah, there's just and and so that's really what I've been studying for the last couple of years is how we can um really empower ourselves because mm-hmm. The thing that I found that was missing, like I had been studying disadvantage and inequality and people who are underestimated for a really long time. And I was presenting these findings and what was happening was that I would present the work Mm -hmm. and afterwards people would come to me and they'd be like, this is so depressing. Like, what (laughs) can we do about this? Like, are there ways that we can level the playing fields? Mm -hmm. And, but all of the solutions that were out there were like these structural solutions, right? Mm-hmm. Or these like systemic solutions, things like, oh, well, like as organizations, let's try and have checklists to help us do hiring better. Or mm-hmm. Let's even have algorithms to help us do blind hiring. Or let's try and have more like women and minorities in like top management teams or address the leaky pipeline or the bamboo ceiling or glass ceilings. And, and the thing is that these are all like things that are, these are all steps in the right direction. Like these are all great things but it was also i found leaving individuals super frustrated even more frustrated because it was as if we were telling them yes we know that it's an imperfect system we know that there's a myth of meritocracy but just wait wait until we try and fix the pipeline wait and try until we try and fix hiring things like just sit and wait we know that there's a problem Mm -hmm. and there wasn't a lot from the inside out that we could be doing. These were all outside in solutions. There wasn't ways that we could from the inside out be empowering ourselves or by, or, or flipping these stereotypes or redirecting these perceptions in a way that even within an imperfect system, there were things that we could be doing. Uh, And so that's why for like the last couple of years, um, I've been 
all of my research and all of my studies have been around, like, what can we do? Like, what are the ways in which we can empower ourselves? And even while we're sort of waiting, or even while these things are still imperfect, that we can authentically be, be, be navigating and, and creating, um, sort of success and positive outcomes in ways other than just like putting our head down, working twice as hard for half the amount of benefits. Yeah. That's a really, really good point. Yeah. And so I have, um, I, I have one last question for you. Well, one last question, but I, I do want to ask one thing before that, um, you know, just personally on, on your personal journey, we'll have to know like how you have grown personally. And is there anyone that you have looked up to that really helped you kind of um, grow into this mindset? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think, I think I have grown, I think I've grown in like, there's some ways that I wish I have, I had grown, but hadn't, but, and there's some ways that I'm glad that I've grown. There's this quote by Joan Didion that says, you know, I, I've lost many different versions of, of who I used to be, right? Like there's something along the lines of like losing touch, like losing touch with people that I used to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that sort of summarizes a lot of what I think about when you're when you're asking that question is that there are definitely people that I have lost touch with that used to be a part of me um, that I, I really want to actively regain contact with. And then there's pieces of myself that I have lost contact with that I think are really good that I've I've lost contact with. And I think another way to answer this is something that I always say or that I often think to myself is like you have to always remember to keep the main thing the main thing. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is like, what is the main thing in your life? Is it your family? Is it your relationships? Is it your mission? Is it your goals? It could be all of those things. It could be multiple things, but so often we get led astray by what's urgent rather than what's important. Right. And we lose touch of what's the main thing because we assume that the main thing will always kind of be there. But as years go by and as time goes by, it does start to ebb and flow and wane. And, and so if we, if we try and concentrate on, on, on those sorts of things, um, I think, um, you know, I think it, it brings so much, so much more, more, more value to, to what we do. And then I guess in terms of like people, oh, there's so many people that I respect and admire for so many different things. I can't say that there's a single, a single person that I'm like, I want their entire life or I want their entire, and this is actually something that I tell my students too. And I think it's something that's really helpful. We tend as humans, because we're such socially connected individually, in, individuals to like envy others or to, to be like jealous of others or like to have something where like, oh, that person achieved that and I want that too. And I tell my students, I say, you don't have permission to be jealous of envious of someone else unless you're willing to trade entire lives with them. Meaning if you want that one thing that they accomplished, you can get it, but then you have to have everything else because they only got that because of who they are and their family and their personality and what they've been through. So you can't just admire 
one dimension. You can't just envy that one dimension of what they've accomplished if you're not willing to take everything else that they have to grapple with and deal with. And that sometimes puts it into perspective of like, oh yeah, like, you know, they may have that, but they also have to deal with all of these other things. And I would never want um, those other pieces. So I say that because there are lots of individuals that I really respect and admire, not all of their dimensions, but certain dimensions. So, you know, Jeremy Lin, I so respect how he is able to so tenaciously fight for what he what he believes in and what he's striving for, but in a way that I don't know, he's like a better man than I am. Like he doesn't let things get to, or maybe he does, but he has mechanisms for for dealing with, like he doesn't name names. I would totally be naming names. Um, Like I, you know, there's like, there's just something around there. There's such a noble, there's such a noble aspect to, to how he lives his life. And I really respect that. I really respect Nelson Mandela. Um, my father's name was Nelson. So he was named after his, his U.S. name was he was given the name after Nelson Mandela and just sort of his character. Um, definitely parts of both my mother and my father. I respect, you know, things about my brother. Like there's just there's dimensions of, of lots of people um, uh, of that that I really respect and, and admire and try and model myself after. Amazing. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Laura. And our one last question for you is how can our listeners find out more about you and your book, Edge? Yeah. How can they support you? Yeah. Thanks so much. I mean, um, like I, I thank you for that. I mean, I think it's really hard. I, I have to be honest. I, I didn't think it was going to be this. It's been really hard as a as a first time woman Asian author. I mean, so many of the authors out there of business books or books that are in my genre are white men who, and so there is this, I didn't realize that even though my book is about disadvantage, I didn't realize that there would be such a hurdle in my words and getting my words out there and the messages and who actually would listen. And, you know, I think the, the Asian and Asian American community has been so supportive. So thank you for your continued support. Um, you, my book is entitled edge turning adversity into advantage. I'm on all social. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter, Laura Huang, LA. Um, I am, uh, you know, my website is laurahuang.net. And I also recently started a helped kick off this nonprofit, which is called project amplify, um, which is really about bringing the messages uh, and my work and the research to underprivileged, underserved communities. It's really trying to, it's understanding that not everyone is going to have access to the things that I teach and um, these messages and these soft skills that bridge what we learn in school and what we learn, what we need in the workplace. And the thing that really bothers me is when I see kids who have been told from a young age, like, you're not smart, you're not good at math, you you don't have potential because there's so much potential that 
Um, and so it's about empowering these these children. And so there's a um, there is uh, we offer free workshops and education to teach about like soft skills, edge, how to cultivate your edge. We offer mentoring, um, so personalized mentoring, um, and there's a book matching program. So any support in terms of people who we're always looking for people who are willing to be mentors for these for these kids. Um, we're always looking for for partners, people that are willing to support this in any sort of ways that you're you're able to, um, just so that this message gets out to more than 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 the people that we would necessarily directly be be getting this message to wow that is that is amazing and we'll also include your nonprofit and links to purchase your book inside our show notes as well thank you thank you guys it's so i mean you're you're doing such phenomenal work and and i'm such a fan so thanks so much it was amazing hearing your story thank you so much for sharing with us thank you laura appreciate you i'll see you at the next meeting <laughs> yeah, yeah, see you in the next meeting. Take care. Bye. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.